0: This is the Education Gadfly Show. This is Show. exciting
1: for a live audience. Hello, everybody! Woo! There it is. Yes, get excited! What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at a special live edition of the Education Gadfly Show, and online at EdExcellence.net. And now we welcome our two special guests for this week the Kevin Durant and Steph Curry of Education Reform, <laughs> Nina Reese and Howard Fuller. Welcome to the show. Hey, what, hey, what happened to LeBron? <laughs> LeBron? LeBron lost, Howard, and yeah, you two are not losers. Yeah, but he's still the king. Yeah, okay. okay. Well, he, we, we had him last year. We had him last year. Uh, Nina Reese is, of course, president and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Dr. Howard Fuller is the is a titan of the charter movement. Uh, Distinguished Professor of Education and and Founder-Director of the Institute for Transportation Learning, Marquette University, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Founder of Bayo, so many other things, uh, Howard, that you have done for this uh, school choice and charter school movement. Thanks for being on the show. Nina, thanks for coming back.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank you for doing this at our conference.
1: Yeah, yeah, we great. we are live here at the National Charter Schools Conference, the 17th annual. Nina, your your microphone working okay? Got got her. Uh, so long as you can see yeah, me. Yeah, it's it's working. Okay, okay. good. Well, uh, we are here taping this on day three of the National Charter School uh, Conference. You happy so far, Nina? Yes, although it's really day
2: two, I guess because it started on Sundays. Sunday. Sunday, <laughs>
1: yeah, come know, on, come on, come on! And I Nina, Nina, you know the the big news was that uh, Secretary DeVos was here this morning. There were no protests that we've heard of. No, no gas masks needed. No uh, craziness.
2: No, in fact, uh, she was well received um, yeah. by our audience. We had a packed house, and uh, we were pleased to have. Doral Bradford at 50Can do a quick Q&A with her. I think nice. uh, the Q&A went well. We wish we had more time to do more questions since really it was supposed to be a dialogue with yeah. the community. Uh, we actually asked everyone to set, submit questions and we got a few of them in. So yeah. hopefully right. it's the start of a longer set of conversations with her.
1: All right, well good. We're gonna talk all about that. Let's get started. It's now time for Ed Reform Update. All right, gang. So Secretary DeVos in her comments uh, today touched on a couple of different themes. One thing I was very happy that she talked about, as many of us have been pleading with her to do, to talk about uh, school choice in all of its forms, right? Public schools, charter schools, magnet schools, home schools—you know—that this is uh, the, the point is not to push uh, private or charter over another form. Is to say the parents should have have their own own choice. Uh, but she also had some comments quoting our good friend Rick Hess, talking about making sure that uh, we uh, education reformers don't become the new education establishment, and also uh, that we don't allow charter schools to lose their innovation. Uh, and, and for example, uh, you know, why is it that we've allowed it to be the case that now you have to fill out a 500 application uh, to start a charter school uh, or, you know, to to let uh, charter school authorizers in some ways claw back a lot of charters autonomy. It strikes me that this could be one of the next big frontiers in in charter schooling. I mean, we're going to keep working on funding. We're going to keep working on things like facilities, uh, you know, caps, all of the bread and butter, but that this is an important one is that there is a concern in lots of places. We certainly hear in Ohio that we are killing charter schools with these compliance demands and that even education reformers are adding to their plates in terms of things that they must do, for example, on school discipline, that they must take a certain approach. Do you agree? Is is this a, a serious problem out there that charters are be getting over-regulated, re-regulated? Dr. Fuller, you want to go first?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a serious problem. I think as I've tried to look at this, the, the issue becomes as you exist over a period of time, and particularly when you're being attacked at every single moment of your existence, mm-hmm. what you do is you start trying to develop uh institutional protections if i can use that way or or at least ways of 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 protecting the effort from those who really don't want to improve it what they want to do is to end it right and so you know as you try to figure out well you know what ways can we make sure that we're protected so that we can exist you 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 run the danger of becoming the 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 new status quo in Mm -hmm. a certain sense the other part of that is that um As we kept trying to say to the public that we're public, then, what that meant was, well, why don't you have all of the same things that mm-hmm. the traditional system has to deal with? And many of us forgot to say, well, the reason why we don't want to do that is we started
1: this to not be like the traditional system. And, and, and let's be specific. I mean, what you, you mean, what like, we're gonna, okay, we'll have certified teachers. Okay, we're gonna do special ed the same way you do special ed. Okay, we're gonna have the same kind of rules around student discipline that you have around students. Right. I mean, is this what you mean?
3: It's, it's all of those things. Yeah. I, I mean, but let's but, but see what a lot of, uh, younger people who've come into the movement or in the effort, whatever we're gonna call it, don't realize that when when the charter effort started, and and in particular I'll mention the V word, when the voucher effort started yeah. as a part of parent choice, one of the things that the AFT did right away was to say, look, the way to kill this movement is that one, you try to make sure it never happens. Mm-hmm. Then if it does happen, you try to weaken the legislation every step of the way, put caps on it, you know, reduce the amount of money, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And then if, if it still gets through, then what you want to do is you want to come back and you want to regulate it to death. Mm-hmm. And so what we have to see is that that strategy is pers- is being pursued mm-hmm. on the charter movement. And, and And the hope is that if you can strangle it and regulation the kind of innovation and autonomy yeah. that was needed to create some of the great schools that have been created that will be harder to, in fact, make that happen.
1: And, and, Nina, I'll put you in the hot seat. You know, some people have claimed that the National Alliance has, at times, given too much ground on, on some of this. Some pretty harsh criticisms on online learning, for example. Uh, some statements you've put out about backfilling uh, seats if kids leave, making sure those seats are filled. Uh, you know, some statements on discipline, where it may appear that, you know, you're willing to, to uh, you know, say that all charters should take a certain approach. I mean, what? what how, how do you see this? Is You know, why why are you giving away the store, Nina? No, 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 I'm just kidding. It's not. But is that fair? Is that not fair? Well, let me just
2: start by answering your first question. I was talking to Ms. Shea Ashton, who just opened the charter school, or was approved to open a charter school in D.C. She's a longtime yep. a member of our movement and um, someone who we used to work as a teacher at TFA and has done charter applications in the past. She just got approved in DC. And I asked her this very question. I said, do you actually think it was harder to do so? And she said, yes. I mean, now what what the application asks you to do is not just to explain what you plan to do, but also exactly how you plan to implement it. Mm -hmm. I think what a lot of these authorizers are trying to get at, and DC authorizer happens to be a really good authorizer, is to figure out how exactly will you implement what you say you're going to do in your plan in order to make sure that you know what you're doing, right? Yep. And so, in in that process, so Michelle was able to get this um, this application through because she knows a lot about. The movement, she has funders backing her, she has institutional knowledge. And so I wondered if someone without her background, but with her passion and her interest in pedagogy and whatnot would have been able to get an application mm-hmm. through in this day and age. So And,
1: and by I, the way, I don't I don't have a problem with all of that. I mean I think you should have to demonstrate that you really know what you're talking about in order to get a charter application. You know, we, we like to compare this sometimes to the world of venture capital and you know, it's not like you get a bunch of VC money just by filling out a little application. They put you through a rigorous screening. They want to know, do the leaders have what it takes, not just a good idea, but also know how to take it to scale. So I, I think that's all legit. I right. don't have a problem.
2: No, and I think that you're correct in that you want to make sure you're addressing the right questions in the application, but there is um, a difference between asking the types of questions that will actually lead to identifying the types of people who are going to run an effective yeah. school and simply asking or going through the motions right. with ty- types of questions that make you feel comfortable that you did your due diligence you with you covered your exactly so there's a difference and so having capable people uh, in the authorizer seat are ex- is extremely important. Um, to your question though about what what the National Alliance has done, I mean I think you would agree that the the paper that we put out on online charter schools was way overdue. We have seen time and again that a lot of these schools, unfortunately, are not raising student achievement. In fact, students mm-hmm. are losing days of learning. If you were to uh, take Mackey um studies at heart, and so it was becoming very difficult for us to talk about quality without acknowledging the fact that in some some states, simply taking out the online charter test scores out of the equation would, in fact, dramatically improve the quality of our sector. And so the things that we offered were actually, in my opinion, pretty reasonable things that a state yeah. legis- legislature could do in order to better regulate the online charter market. Well, so, and it's
1: interesting, you know, when, when you look at the, the feedback from the Secretary's speech, you know, I, many people I've talked to you know, didn't have a problem with what she said about the new education establishment. or They, you know, they were basically saying, you know, she was railing against the red tape, the compliance You know, many of us agree with that. But Ed Week in its coverage thought that she was kind of railing against the criticism in Michigan, this notion that, you know, people wanted to regulate charter schools based on test scores. So it gets you into this realm of quality. In other words, uh, are we talking about compliance? Are we talking about red tape? Or are we talking about quality control? And how do we tell the difference? I mean, you know, everybody claims that what they're, putting on charters is about quality or accountability. I mean, at Fordham, we have always been very clear. Look, we think that parents should have a wide range of choices, But we do not think that among those choices should be really crappy schools, you know. And we think one way to measure that is by test scores. Uh, But some people say, well, Mike, you know, that makes me the man. That makes me the new establishment because I'm limiting parents' choices to only those that are actually get results in terms of growing student achievement. I mean, how do you think about this, Howard? I mean, are we is this conversation purposely muddled by some of our opponents, or how how do we how do we put on the one on the right side of the ledger stuff that is actually about quality versus stuff that's just trying to kill us. Well, I think
3: if this was easy to do, we would have figured it out, right? So so clearly, this is a problem. And and it's a problem because some of the arguments that our opponents make have a level of validity to them, Mm -hmm. right? But what we have to be clear is their arguments are not to improve what is happening. Their arguments are to crush us. And when people come at you and their real objective is to crush you, Mm -hmm. you have a much different response to them if what you think they're really trying to do is to help us figure out how to make this better. And what I'm trying to say is at no point have many of the opponents taken attack to say, we want to use fair accountability measures so that the charter school movement is better. They want to use it as an argument to end the chartering process. Mm-hmm. And and to me, that's where the difficulty is. Because it is absolutely clear that some terrible schools have been started, you know, both as private schools mm-hmm. and as charter schools. What's also true is some excellent schools have been started, right? right? The issue, Mike, is where is the is the the sweet spot or whatever between accountability and stifling autonomy? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I think that what we have to consistently try to do is to say that we believe that parents ought to be able to choose. That if you have to choose from mediocrity, that's really not freedom, Mm -hmm. as I would define it. But at the same time, what parents want to see in schools are not always all of the accountability measures that we put onto a school. Mm -hmm. Yes, testing is one aspect of that. But there are a lot of other elements that are important to defining a really
1: good school that are not test score based only. And Nina, what are you thinking these days on discipline? Is this an area that should be about autonomy? It's up to the schools. Uh, or are there issues in there that are need to be about uniformity, civil rights, et cetera, et cetera?
2: Um, I think in those markets where charters are reaching fifty percent or more yeah. in terms of saturation, you do need to pay a lot more attention to these types of practices, so that at the end of the day, if you go towards an all charter district, that there is a room or a yeah. space for some of the students, especially who for may expulsions. Not, exactly. Right. So right. there needs to be room for everyone in a in a broad system. Yep. Uh, but in the smaller markets, um, yeah, I, I would be remiss if I said that that is something that we have to force every school to do, because a lot of parents get attracted to some of these schools. Because of certain features that they have, which yep. are perhaps more strict. But having said that, I, I was again visiting Ben um, Moskowitz's school, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing mm-hmm. his last name pr- properly. He's um, he runs an effective um, set of charter schools in New Orleans called Collegiate Academies, and he has a great program that he has built in-house for uh, his students. After he found out at that how high of an expulsion mm-hmm. uh, rate he had over the years, and how much he personally kind of came to the understanding that having these students outside of your school or to the extent you are expelling them for a certain number of weeks for whatever reason mm-hmm. is actually not going to benefit them or your school at the end of the day. So I do think some of them to the extent by choice they're deciding to keep more students in or coming up with restorative justice programs that fit their schools yep. needs that is a good thing but I yep. I'm remiss okay. to mandate that on every school
1: all right last question lightning round here eva moskowitz success academy won the broad prize this year uh long overdue uh finally gonna get respect from the rest of the charter movement what do you think what's your take uh on success
3: well i mean i like eva and i I think she and her colleagues have proven that they can create great schools but don't matter she's still going to be criticized (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, and she's going to be criticized in part because she's successful yeah. and for the people who don't want to see that it
1: doesn't matter what yeah. eva does that's man. right that's it right. just doesn't no, no, no. matter some of our opponents they, it's like they like bad charter schools more than they like good charter schools <laughs> nina
2: well yeah i mean it was long overdue and we p- participated in administering the broad prize it's very difficult to argue that she should not have gotten yeah. that award based on the data that her school's pr- and she's doing it just a tremendous job of raising student achievement for disadvantaged students so uh, in our opinion if you really want to boost excellence you should go visit that school and see what she's doing right rather than constantly picking at the things that you you may not think she's doing well
1: all right we'll let you finish with that that is all the time we've got for our ed reform update thank you very much dr. Fuller and Nina for joining us on this segment now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's research minute Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Here we are, our first ever live recording.
0: Very it's exciting. exciting. It is really exciting. And is this your very first ever My very conference? My very first charter school conference. I have really enjoyed it. All right. Well, yeah. well, I mean, I'm good. not just saying that. I've, I've learned some things. Yeah. It's been yeah. hugely interesting, the sessions I've sat in on. So yeah.
1: That's excellent. Well, also joining us from the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools is Susan Pendergrass. Hello Mike and Amber. Hey, nice hey. to be here. And Susan has, is also has, has a similar she's the Head hon show at the National Yes, Alliance
0: that's our for, official title Head honcho. For
1: research, right? Mm-hmm. Research and evaluation. Okay. So thanks for joining us. And we are going to because it's the National Charter School Conference Week, we're going to do a special a session on a charter school study. It that was be our own charter school yes.
0: study. Yes. Little shout out to us. All right. All right. So
1: tell us all about
0: it. All right. We got a new study out from Fordham. It examines whether there are empirical red flags in charter school applications that can be used to predict whether a proposed charter school is at risk of performing poorly. Uh, the study is called Three Signs that a Proposed Charter School is at Risk of Failing, because we like very uh, self-descriptive titles. It's conducted by Anna Nicotera and David Stite of Basis Policy Research, so shout out to them. Uh, Uh, And we got to thinking, you know, we know that many charter schools are doing a great job educating students, yet a major threat to the legitimacy of the entire movement is these continued presence of chronically failing schools. So we got to thinking, you know, do you think it's possible to predict which charter schools are likely to perform poorly before they even open their doors? That's so a cool question, right? Right. Very cool question. So analysts coded 639 applications submitted to 30 different authorizers in four states, Colorado, Indiana, North Carolina, and Texas between 2009 and 2015. Um, and basically we looked at a few things uh, in, those, in those applications I'll talk about in a minute. But first of all, how did we define low performance? Uh, we looked at schools that fell below the 25th percentile in proficiency and below the 50th percentile in growth. So they basically had to have low proficiency. And low growth. Right. We coded. I think about
1: these as, as sort of double F schools. Double whammies. Uh, yes.
0: yes. And, and, and by the way, oh, <laughs> I thought you meant F as in the F bomb for a oh. second there. I had to like what? No, we're like A to F. <laughs> Yikes. Okay.
1: And, and look, and look. You know, in light of what we were just talking about on the show, you know, Secretary DeVos complained that we have these now 500-page charter school applications, and then is right to. That's not the way to think about quality. But how great would it be? Is if authorizers knew that there were just really a handful of things Mm -hmm. that would indicate that maybe a school is not ready for prime time. Mm -hmm. That's what we were after. That's right.
0: Very good. We were ahead of our time. Uh, We coded 12 different indicators in the application based in part on what research says, predicts school performance. So we did actually go in looking at the research. And we also tried to choose things that were easy to spot in an application. So you don't need, you know, it's not brain science trying to find this thing in the application. So indicators included things like whether the schools intended to offer an extended day schedule or whether they have a plan for using data to drive instructional improvement and so on. I won't get into the details of all the methods, but the bottom line is um, they were looking at these 12 indicators and they were testing them in a, in a statistical model to see which of the indicators improve the predictive power of the model. Four key findings, number one, Authorizers rejected. What percentage of applications do you think,
1: Mike? Seventy-three percent.
0: Ah, seventy-seven. You're so close. Uh, So we know this is not a rubber stamping process. Uh, So that's that's pretty high rejection rate. Number two of the schools that ultimately opened, nearly thirty percent were deemed low performing during their first years of operation. So that's a that's a decent amount, right? And number three, several aspects of applications made them more likely to be rejected. So this is sort of the flip question. So You know, what are these things that we think uh, are correlated to them being rejected? Uh, I'll just give you a couple. One was a lack of evidence that the school will start with a sound financial foundation. So what does that mean? It means, for instance, they had no per-pupil revenue projections in their budget. Kind of a big deal that they're not aware of that or at least discussing that. Um, They didn't identify an external funding source was another one. So uh, in other words, there were some concerns about the financial end of things. And the last finding, number four, we found three things that, again, make it more likely that the school would be low performing. The first was a lack of identified leadership, which basically means that that application did not propose a school leader, didn't name a school leader, didn't talk about a process by which that leader would be identified. Um, We had a number of takeaways we can talk about because I know I'm already over my time. Um, But the one thing we ended up saying was, you know, using these results for lazy authorizing is not what we're after here. We really just want these things to be flags for uh, closer review of that application because this was not a causal Study. So there you have it.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Susan, you go first. What what, what what do you take of this? Or, you know, what would you tell authorizers based on what you're hearing here?
4: Well, one thing that I would take away from it is I think, if I recall, you wrote this recently. I'm fascinated by the sort of like the, the two streams of charter school parents. You have the Liberal progressive stream, mm-hmm. charter school parents, and you have the charter school parents looking for the uh, no excuses, mm-hmm. you know, highly regimented schools, right? Mm-hmm. And so that liberal progressive stream, they love the child centered approach, mm-hmm. right? And they don't love it because they're getting growth or proficiency. Mm-hmm. They're like, it has an outdoor school, and that's mm-hmm. cool to me. You know what I mean? And I want my kids to have a piece of that. So I like what you say about not using this in a prescriptive way mm-hmm. to say, oh, sorry, Montessori, that's going to fail. Right. Because in the eyes of the parents, that might not mm-hmm. be a failing school, right? right? But I. But to the point that you were talking about before, it makes a lot of sense to force applicants to get their ducks in a row before mm-hmm. you give them a charter, right? And the idea, like, in the beginning, like, I don't know who the principal is going to be. We don't know how we're going to go about this. Mm-hmm. You can see that that's not going to work. But yeah. um, if if I were to make a plug, I would say that's why they need more startup funding and more planning funding because yeah. that's hard to do to get a principal to commit when you're like, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to pay you. It's a hard thing to yeah. get them to commit to changing right. jobs. But but um, I thought it was fascinating. I think that learning more about authorizing is going to be the key going mm-hmm. forward because mm-hmm. we now know that really that's sort of who's monitoring the uh, and and kind of responsible for the quality of the systems. We put a lot on state organizations, but the authorizers really, as the gatekeepers, if you will, um, they need to be doing a better job of, of you know, I think the uh, acceptance rate hasn't changed very much over time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, even that's as right. a number of applications has changed, Change. and that's weird to me, like... Doesn't that seem kind of weird? Are the applications just uh, the same level of quality? quality? I doubt right? it. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. We know they're higher quality. So the fact that, I, w- I just wonder if they feel like, I don't know, we already approved Right. they They've got some quota in their I mind. I think mm-hmm. I can't do anymore. So mm-hmm. I do think that's interesting. But I, was, I thought it was a great study. I thought like the, the child center thing was the biggest yeah. surprise. Well, mm-hmm. and,
1: and that has gotten a lot of attention. And, and there's been, almost everybody has said, more or less, seconding what we said in the foreword of saying it even stronger, which is by all means, we should continue to allow these child-centered models to open. We just have to be both realistic about what we might see on test scores and find other ways to measure their effectiveness uh, beyond test scores. And that's all fine and good. However, uh, you know, what are those other ways to measure effectiveness? I mean, what if it's the case that, you know what? Uh, Kids may get a lot out of some of these models. I had my own kids in a Waldorf preschool once upon a time, but they might kind of suck at teaching, (laughs) reading, and writing, and math. Right. And maybe if we're talking about upper middle class kids who are going to do okay anyway, that's fine. But, you know, would it be responsible if you're, you know, if it's a school that's going to be a high poverty school for kids who's, only shot at getting out of poverty is to get really good academic skills that gives them a pathway to post-secondary education i don't know if at that point it's a responsible thing to say sure take a shot at a really Mm -hmm. progressive school that Mm -hmm. we have no evidence has ever been good for kids like you i mean but but then
4: do you think it appeals to them do you think the progressive model appeals to low income well in in,
1: on average in general most research that i've seen and written about would say no but you know there could mm -hmm. be and but that makes us uncomfortable basically saying, well, it's okay for sort of white upper-middle class mm-hmm, right. kids if, if they, they get to have the the you know, frou-frou outdoor school Waldorf thing, but we're not going to give that to poor black kids. I mean, that doesn't sound yeah. very yeah. defensible I either. Right. I mean, so I guess what I'm trying to say is the truth is you know, we make it sound easy. This is not easy. This gets you right back into some very hard decisions that you make as an author. And
0: one thing we see in the paper is, you know, these are not easy pedagogies to implement. These are fairly complex in many ways, um, strategies to teach kids. And so some of these teachers aren't trained properly. So it could also be the question of, you know, do you have teachers who are effective at teaching this particular type of curriculum? Because I think in some ways, it requires a a little bit different skill set than maybe your. Standard curriculum that might be maybe in use in a district,
4: and similar to the uh, the second finding on the uh, high poverty, low dose.
2: Mm-hmm, that was mm-hmm.
4: I mean, I think a lot of people are very inspired from a social justice point of view to want to make a difference in the lives of low income children. Right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean everyone knows how to go about that, and right. a lot of very passionate people might put together a charter school application, but not know what they're really what they need in terms of social services and like how challenging that can be discipline, like, how challenging yeah. that can be. So I think that one doesn't surprise me as much, but I'm just wondering, were you surprised by the finding on the child center? Well,
0: I, I was, but I think that once we sort of peel back the layers at, at, Fordham, uh, we know that these really aren't suited really. The content is not always aligned to these state, these state tests. So you're kind of testing oh, right. something that's no. not really being measured on the test. So yeah. I think that's where we came out ultimately.
1: You know, one, one more comment that there's a new book out by Richard Reeves, who's over at Brookings, mm-hmm. uh, you know, really, Thoughtful guy and has done a lot of work in upper mobility. This book to me sounds a little crazy. It's called Dream Hoarders. He's basically giving us oh. upper middle class parents a hard time for uh, doing so much to give our kids and you know uh, a leg a up. Leg up. Uh-huh. Uh, but he, so I got the solution. Upper, if every upper middle class kid sent their kid to one of these child centered schools that was really bad at raising achievement, that might be uh, even you know that might reason. help even the playing fields. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Boom. Problem solved. I tend to recall maybe your sons
0: enjoyed learning how to like make silk worm thread they when did. they were at they their did. school in, and in
1: fact the other day my 7 year old said I, I'm really good at knitting because of my Waldorf experience <laughs> <There you go. laughs> and I said that's great kid now that's get great. back to sounding out your phonics I for buddy.
0: one love the emails that you used to forward to me from little, little Nico was it Nico's teacher uh, that was the the, uh, the Waldorf teacher maybe.
1: It, was a, it was a joyful school oh man they, they were, that was just great it was a great time but there comes a time in life when you gotta get you're done with joyfulness and you gotta no get more on joy. with the
0: Hey, I wanted to be in that lady's <laughs> class, man. That was She was doing some great things.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, that is all the time we've got. Frankly, we spent way more time, we but did. it's
0: special. It's Somebody's going to be audience. editing the, Mark, Mark the podcast. Mark has been tweeting.
1: Well, it's amazing. Woo-hoo! So, uh, Thank you. Anyway, thank you, Susan, for joining us. Amber, thank you so much for this Absolutely. special. Absolutely. Until next time. I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly
0: Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.